6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 15 through 29. You know, I'm fascinated. Back in uh, uh, in June of 2005, there was an article in Scientific American in which they basically said that they now understand that our reality is but a shadow of a larger reality. And I was fascinated by that article because that's exactly what the Bible has been saying all along. Anyway, every nation that became decadent was finally conquered by another nation. And there's no reason why ours should be any exception. And I I remember it's attributed to Jim Elliott, a missionary martyr, who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I think that's terrific. See, responding to the Father's love in in our devotional life and the Father's will in our daily conduct are the tests of our worldliness. No Christian becomes worldly all of a sudden, it happens in small steps. First comes friendship with the world. James warns us about that. The world and the Christian are enemies. Next, the Christian becomes spotted by the world. Friendship leads to love, and as a result, the Christian becomes conformed to the world. And being conformed can also lead to being condemned with the world. In extreme cases, Christians have even lost their lives. Not their salvation, but their lives. Lot is a good example. These downward steps I'm going to highlight here are illustrated in the life of Lot in Genesis 13 all the way through to 19. First, Lot looked toward Sodom, and then he pitched his tent toward Sodom in the, in the well-watered plains of the Jordan. It looked good to him. I'm going to go this way. Sounds great. Abraham said, you choose. We've got to divide up. We've got to divide up. You, pick, you get your pick. Well, I'll, I'll go this way. It looked pretty good. Then he moved. He first looked at Sodom, then he moved to Sodom. And it, by the way, it's, the text seems to indicate that he actually didn't just move there. He became a, a, an alderman or leader, a, a mayor or whatever, because he sat in the gate. That's what it implies. When Sodom was captured by an enemy, Lot was captured too. He was a believer, but he had to suffer with the unbelieving sinners of the wicked. He was there, so he got caught up when they were conquered by in the... Uh, the battle of, the, of Genesis 14. When God destroyed Sodom, everything Lot lived up went up in smoke. He himself was saved, but so is by fire, and he lost his eternal reward. The will of God. You know, God wants us to understand his will. Ephesians 5, 17. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Wow, how do you do that? That's probably our biggest ambition, isn't it? To understand God's will in our lives. A benefit of salvation is knowing God's will. Let's claim it. God wants us to be filled with the knowledge of His will. Colossians 1.9 For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, 
and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will, all wisdom and spiritual understanding. See, the key issue we should face is not whether a certain thing is wrong, good, or bad, or rather, is it the will of God for me? You know, you talk about smoking or dancing, all these controversies. That's not, those aren't the, the issues, issues of the heart. What's the will of God for you? How does one discover the will of God? That's a good question. The process begins with surrender. That's the way you find out, you surrender. Romans 12, first two verses. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may be prove, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Wow. The Father shares his secrets with those who obey him. Are you obeying God? John 7, 17, Jesus says, If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. So the Christian is in the world physically, but not of the world spiritually. Christ has sent us into the world to bear witness of him. And like a scuba diver, we must live in an alien environment. And if we're not careful, that environment can drown us. The world gets into, a, gets into a Christian through his heart. Love, not the world. That's the fatal, your fatal stewardship. Are we going to build on sand or a rock is the question. You hear people say, it makes no, matter, it makes no difference what you believe just as long as you are sincere. That's utter nonsense. And yet it's so widely presumed by people. It's a common rationale to, in, our, in today's world. Is sincerity the magic ingredient that makes something true? I don't think so. If you drink poison sincerely, it will, make, will it make a medical difference? I don't think so. And that's what people are doing today. Faith and lie will always have serious consequences. John's warned the church family, the barren ones, about a conflict between light and, light and darkness. That was in, first in, in uh, chapter 1. Then he warned us about love and hatred in, in uh, the first half of chapter 2. Now he's warning us about the conflict between truth and error. We're going to talk more about this. It's not enough for a believer to walk in the light and walk in love. He must also walk in truth. Truth is important. So he continues, verse 18, Little children, the technion, that, that uh, very, very endearing uh, term, it is the last time, and as we have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, thereby, thereby we know that it is the last time. See, we are in an hour of crisis, and we've got to be on our guard against the errors of the enemy. And by the way, this all has started since the death and resurrection of Christ. God's now doing a new thing in this world, and he's still at it. All Old Testament history prepared the way for that profound event, namely the death and resurrection of Christ, and its climax is going to be coming before us. Jesus is coming back to take over. And the enemy knows it. And he's going to do everything in his power in his attempt to thwart it, or to hinder it, or to confuse it. Antichrist, that's a strange term. It's used only by John in his epistles. 
And he does so four times. But it's fascinating to me that he doesn't use that term in the book of Revelation, which is, he authored that, but he doesn't use the word Antichrist there. We always use the term Antichrist for a couple of those other guys there that come up in that book, but it's interesting that John doesn't use that term there. What is the Antichrist? The spirit that is in the world that opposes and denies Christ. That's, what, that's the way he's using that term here. The false teachers who embody this spirit. There are lots of Antichrists running around that are false teachers. So he's using that term in that sense. We tend to use it in a very eschatological sense. Let's not confuse ourselves. It's also a specific leader, a satanic superman who will head up the final world rebellion against Christ. So there's, there's, there's the different ways that term is used here. The prefix, antichrist, means against, but it also means instead of. In, antichristos in the Greek means instead of Christ, you see, not just against. We think of anti as just confront, you know, against like confronting. No, it can also be against in the sense of taking its place. See. The spirit of antichrist has been in the world since Genesis 3. And it's presently behind every false doctrine and every religious substitute for the realities Christians have in Christ. You need to understand that. That all started long ago. And their evil work is being hindered by the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in the church. But when the church is removed in the harpazo, the rapture as we call it, the snatching up, then Satan will complete a temporary... He will. Uh, complete a temporary victory, which uh, John details then in Revelation 13 and uh, 16 and 19. And uh, so that, that'll be a very temporary victory, of course. So there are, we need to understand these false teachers, because that's the way we see them here today. There are three outstanding characteristics of these false teachers. They depart from the fellowship, they deny the faith, and then they try to deceive the faithful. That's what he's going to build up here. The first step, they depart from fellowship. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now we have the word of us, of us, with us, all of us. The word us here refers to the fellowship of the believers, the church. They had koinonia. We're sometimes presented as a body, like in 1 Corinthians 12, and sometimes we're presented as a building in Ephesians 2. But not all who are in the fellowship are saved. But remaining in the fellowship is but one evidence. If you're in and remain, that's at least a suggestive evidence that you're saved, not necessarily, not necessarily conclusive. Jesus makes it clear that only those who produce fruit are truly born again. So if you're born again, you should be bearing fruit. And uh, I don't think if you're bearing fruit, you generally are aware of it. Maybe not. It's interesting that the history of the false cults and the anti-Christian religious systems, um, every leader started out in a local church. Interesting, isn't it? They were all with us, but not of us, John is saying. The New Testament makes it clear that it is dangerous to depart from the fellowship. When you depart from a fellowship, you're putting yourself in jeopardy. Gives the world a chance to get their hands on you. Be careful. If you're unhappy in one fellowship, don't leave one, enter another one. But be in fellowship. That's very important for your own safety, spiritually. 
So that from, from the departing fellowship, the next step will be, if you depart from fellowship, is denying the faith. John says, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Now that word, false teachers, see then, back then and even today, use two special words you'll find them using to describe their experience. Knowledge, that's where the word Gnostics gets taken from, and unction or anointing, which gave them their unique knowledge or illumination. You talk to the New Agers and they got illumination, presumably. Our great advantage is that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh. And by the way, not all pulpits declare that. And if they deny that, they belong to Antichrist. That's what John's point is there. He continues here, verse 21, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Now this happens to be reason number five of the seven we listed earlier, the seven um, ways we you know, uh, uh, know, because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. See, you can't really separate the Father and Son. They are distinct, but they're also inseparable. Don't confuse those two. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Now, the unsaved world can never understand the true Christian. Don't be surprised. They can't. They don't have the capacity to. To confess that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh involves far more than simply to, ident to identify Christ. The demons did that and trembled. The true faith is committed reliance on who he is and what he has done, not merely intellectual assent. Don't let those words slip away without you grasping them. True faith is a committed reliance on who he is and what he has done. It's not merely an intellectual exercise. Witnessing to somebody is not an intellectual trip. It's a spiritual adventure. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. Now, so we go from denying the faith to trying to deceive the faithful. This is the part that is especially annoying. These things that are written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Now, this is, this is reason number six, protection against the seducers. John's purpose was to protect the saints against those who would lead them astray. Now, here in 1 John is a specific book of the Bible that has been written to protect you from error. That's his motive. That's his purpose. That's what he's up to here. Now, it's very fascinating to me that anti-Christian groups rarely try to lead lost sinners to their false faith. Instead, they spend much of their effort trying to convert professing Christians to their doctrines. They are out to seduce. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John 8. It intrigues me how much energy they spend trying to recruit from other people's ministries rather than from, you know, the, the, un the uncommitted. I think that's interesting. The devil's purpose is to lead Christians astray by encouraging false doctrines. 
in 2 Corinthians 11 and elsewhere. Now, you should understand it's possible to spin or twist the, Christ, the Scripture to mean almost anything. That's one of the reasons you want to avoid one-verse theology. Always two or three witnesses, always intersect. If you're an instrument flyer in an airplane, you have six basic flight instruments, and you avoid getting fixated on any one of them. You cross-check, 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 because one alone can mislead you. It's the combination that keeps you straight and level and all that sort of thing. If you know a pilot, ask about cross-check. He'll explain it to you. Well, the same thing is true in the Bible. Any truth is intersected several ways, always by two or three witnesses. And people who have these weird ideas usually capture one little verse out of context and then build an empire on that. Watch out for that. And, uh, and watch out for allegories. Allegories are useful illustrations, but they're deadly for doctrine because you can, make a, you can misapply them. So they're useful, but not for doctrine. An allegory is a license to invent. And in the computer industry, we have a, a saying that I think is useful. If you torture the data long enough, it'll confess to anything. So, go on here. Satan has counterfeit ministers. They preach a counterfeit gospel, according to Galatians 1, that produces counterfeit Christians in John 8, who depend on a counterfeit righteousness in Romans 10. Counterfeit ministers in 2 Corinthians 11 preach a counterfeit gospel in Galatians 1 that produces counterfeit Christians in John 8 who depend on counterfeit righteousness in Romans 10. uh, Jesus sows true seed. The enemy sows tares. And be careful with these characters that are running around trying to pull up the tares. They claim that's what they're trying to do, but the purpose of that parable was to say, no, no, you'll leave them to the end lest you disturb good wheat. And uh, somehow the internet is full of terror hunters, I think. But anyway, let's go ahead. John was writing in the midst of the emergent Gnostic heresies, and so these letters are extremely timely today, with widespread denials of deity of Christ so prevalent in the antics of the Jesus Seminar and various blasphemous TV specials. These so-called experts that vote on what they think Jesus really said you get the impression that if they, if they voted properly that Jesus might resign. I don't know. It's, a, it's ridiculous. I thought scholarship was one of scholarship, not voting on what you think somebody might have said. In any case, the Gnostic heresies are prevalent today. And uh, we, dis- we discussed several variants among the Gnostics the last time we talked, but there are also two other extreme groups who deny the messiahship of Jesus that were mentioned back in Acts 17-18. The Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, the Stoics were disciples of Zeno, and their name came from the painted portico in Athens where Zeno lectured. They were pantheists, God is everywhere, kind of thing, who held that the wise man should be free from passion, unmoved by joy or grief, and submissive to natural law. They observed rigid rules and intense self-discipline. It's interesting that even the Greeks understood that Eros needed to be carefully bridled. The rampant exploitation and demeaning of sex in our society is reaping a whirlwind. Even the Greeks knew better than that. The other group that Acts talks about are the Epicureans. They took the name from Epicurus, who taught in Athens. They accepted the Greek gods on Mount Olympus. They considered pleasure rather than truth as the primary pursuit in life. Originally, they sought to satisfy intellectual uh, rather than sensual gratification. 
but later they taught their followers to satisfy body's desires so they wouldn't bother them anymore. Okay? The best answer to temptation is to give in, I guess. Well, today the denial of any foundational absolute truth, is it any wonder that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes? Our society denies the whole concept of absolute truth. Then we wonder why our kids have no sense of destiny. Everyone doing is right in their own eyes is a term in the Bible, throughout the Bible, in Deuteronomy and all through Judges, as an indication of amorality, the lack of any morality. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Between the two extremes of the Stoics on the one hand and the Epicureans on the other, there were a lot of variations, but all of them had in common their denial of the Messiahship of Jesus. The Gnostics were probably distinctive in that they boasted a super-knowledge, and they sort of accepted Jesus, but not in his true, not in his true, either, not, they either, they tried to make him deity with no humanity, or humanity with no deity, and they had their different ways of doing that. And uh, the Gnostics were the opposite of agnosticism, which holds that the reality of God is unknown and probably unknowable. And I love what Charles Spurgeon pointed out, that he said agnostic is the Greek word, but in the Latin it would be ignoramus. And that doesn't go well over, you know, cocktail parties. Well, I am an ignoramus. Oh, really? Agnostic works, ignoramus doesn't, but it's the same word. Anyway, it's significant to note that the subsequent headquarters of the Gnostics was in Alexandria, the famed literary headquarters in Egypt. The Alexandrian manuscripts, which are Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus, which were very popular in the last few decades because of the most complete old manuscripts. They're not the oldest, but the oldest complete ones. Almost, and they're not really complete either. But anyway, uh, they're now understood to have been expurgated uh, in various ways and, and uh, that, that had remained discarded for many years, but were promoted by Westcott and Hort, who were very competent linguists, but who embraced the Gnostic heresies. And so they became very popular foundations for the modern translations in the last few decades. But the pendulum swung the other way. We're now beginning to realize that for what they really were. And uh, it's swinging back to Texas Receptus in terms of being uh, more appropriate. And so, anyway, the Westcott and Hort uh, sources became very major influence on most modern translations. But in recent years, many scholars now regard these sources as corrupt and have encouraged a return to the Byzantine text as represented by Texas Receptus and all those, which are the primary sources for the King James Version and its variants. And uh, you can see our, how we got our Bible briefing package if you want to get into this more deeply. But anyway, how does one detect the counterfeits is the question. Well, in verse 27, John says, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. By anointing. This anointing abides in the believer and equips him for his calling as a true witness to Christ. Now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear ye may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, the word abide here means to remain in fellowship. And fellowship, or koinonia, is the key idea in the first two chapters of this epistle. We finish the first two chapters. It's going to shift now a little bit. But the word abide dominates the section we've just read. If we abide in Christ, we walk as he walked. If we love our brother, we abide in the light. If the word abides in us, he will be spiritually, we will be spiritually strong. If we do the will of God, we shall abide forever. 
The anointing of the Holy Spirit abides in us, and we should abide in the Spirit. Key word. And the secret to that is surrender. We abide in the Word, in the Spirit, and in Christ. That's the goal. That's the progression of this chapter. And if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And so verses 28 and 29, these last two verses, are the bridge from the fellowship section into the sonship section of the epistle, which begins next time as we take up chapter 3. So the next three chapters are going to focus on sonship or being born of God. What does that really mean? And we'll be getting into that next time. So, a little light reading, right? Now, we, we split chapter 2 into two sessions. And I think the remaining book, by the way, we'll take a chapter at a time. So we'll wrap this up in, a, in, in what, three more, three more sessions. But incredible, incredible epistle. Uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. We so desperately want to know the will of Christ, and we do that by surrendering to Him. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank You for the epistle of John. We thank You, Father, for its intense lessons for each of us. We thank You, Father, that we are part of Your family. And we thank You, Father, that we, it's possible for us to know your will in our lives. Oh, we covet that, Father. We seek that and none other. We recognize that our most important stewardship is that of our heart. So we commit ourselves to you, Father, without any reservations whatsoever. We surrender our wills to you that we might know your will in our lives. We ask all this, Father, that we might grow and grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we might Indeed, be more pleasing in thy sight as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our Messiah, in whose name we do these things. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.